This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Soon, we'll hear from Deirdre McCloskey, an esteemed economist and historian who will help us understand why the human race is currently experiencing unprecedented prosperity. But first, as I look at the week ahead, here's what you can expect. Next week, we get the Consumer Confidence Index released. As all this talk about trade wars and the like affected consumer confidence, the retail sales have been, some cases, good and some cases not so good. So this will be a much-looked-after number. Around the same time, we'll get the Case-Shiller Indices. These will give us home prices nationally. Are they starting to firm up or are they weakening? Both will give us signs of what lies ahead with the economy. Now, another thing to watch out for is health care. President Trump said the other day that in a few weeks he's going to have a great health care plan coming out. But I guarantee you, leaks are going to come before the plan itself, and they will start next week. And on the trade front, the White House is learning that when good news comes on the trade front, stocks move up. When it looks like we're going to have a trade war, stocks go down. So stay tuned. This week we got good news. Europe, no trade war for at least six months. Huawei, 90-day reprieve. Mexico, Canada, steel and aluminum tariffs may be coming off. If this good news continues, by golly, we're going to have a better stock market and a better economy. Deirdre McCloskey is a renowned scholar. She's been a professor of economics, history, English, communications at the University of Chicago and elsewhere. She's written 17 books, including several that have been highly acclaimed as original scholarly studies and hundreds of scholarly articles. She makes the point that in the last 200 years, we've had an unprecedented rise in prosperity, but how did it happen? For thousands of years, per capita income adjusted for inflation was about two or three dollars a day. Sometimes it would go up to six dollars a day, maybe even eight or ten, but now it's over a hundred dollars a day. What happened in the last two or three hundred years that saw this surge of individual incomes, individual wealth, longevity, even as the world population increased some seven or eight fold? Deirdre says it's not things, but ideas. It's not material matters, it's how people think. So Deirdre, first, can you describe what happened since the 1700s, 1800s? Huge break in history. Well, the main thing that happened was thousands and thousands of ideas for improvements in, in products, such as improved glass, which is now used for construction in large sheets all over the place, or um, entirely new products like the computer or the automobile, or merely organizational ideas like containerization and hundreds of others uh, of these things. So that's what I mean in the first instance by ideas. I, I would prefer to call what we have had for the last couple of centuries 
therefore not capitalism, which we've always had, but innovism. And it's that that made the modern world. If you have the excellent idea, the investment will usually follow, guided, of course, by Forbes magazine. Thank you. <laughs> I owe you a free lunch now. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing, Steve. <laughs> so uh, capital, as you point out, has always been around, but it was all of these sudden uh, innovations that came along, and the capital uh, made it possible to bring it to fruition. Absolutely. What changed attitudes? Because, as you've pointed out, China had enormous advances. Other societies had enormous advances, yet it didn't take off the way it did a couple of centuries ago to where we are today. So what happened in people's minds, and what brought it about? I think the word you have to use, and it's a little surprising in this context, at least to Americans, is liberalism. In the old sense, in the sense of freeing the people from hierarchies, from everyone having a, a master. And those successive freedoms from the 1700s on, especially in Northwestern Europe, where it, start, it starts in Holland and spreads to England and Scotland, and then the, the colonies that became the United States, and then it keeps going, it keeps spreading, and, and here's the key point. More and more people are freed to have a go. This is so fundamental to the success of the United States that we often forget that it's unusual historically to have this liberal idea that everyone should be equal in dignity and before the law. This is unique to Northwestern Europe starting in the 18th century and then gradually improving over the 19th and 20th. What was the genesis of the idea of individual liberty and why did it rise up in what we call the West and not somewhere else? What happens in Northwestern Europe are some accidents that made people bold, that they could be entrepreneurs. It was very much in church governments. It was the radical reformation, the kind of crazy people, the most extreme being the Quakers in the 1600s, who didn't have a boss in the church. The Quakers didn't even have a minister. And that kind of innovation, accidentally successful in Germany at first and spreading elsewhere, made people prepared to have a go. And then again, the English Civil War in the 1640s, in which it was put forward the radical idea that people don't need a boss or a uh, involuntary boss, a, a master. They should be free. Uh, and then there's the American and the French revolutions, both of which inspirited people in this same way. So there's this gradual accumulation of experiments, you might say, in politics and theology that finally accumulated by the late 18th century in the idea that all men and indeed uh, women are created equal. This set the stage for, if I can do it with religion, why can't I do it in other things? Exactly. Well, one must always remember that these are sincere and convinced Christians that we're construing here. And it was very important to them 
that their religious life be done correctly. And when it occurred to them, through the printing press, actually, which was crucial to all this, that they could be a priest to themselves, so to speak. This was remarkably potent in their lives. So with other societies, you can find many of the attributes we think created our extraordinary world today, but they always seem to peter out. As you point out, in China, it looked like they were they were ahead of the rest of the world and then fell behind, fell behind the West. One classic argument, which people have often made, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that, is that Europe was fragmented in a way that China and at least the north of India and the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire, for that matter, were not. And in China, famously, the emperor could stop commerce when he wanted to. Whereas if someone wanted to stop commerce in um, Holland, in one city in Holland, a la Donald Trump, there would be hundreds of other polities that would be prepared to uh, keep the commerce going. The fragmentation was a good seedbed for freedom. But as I mentioned, what's now India, the, the southern part of India was equally fragmented, yet did not have this same birth of, of freedom. Because they didn't have the experience that we saw in Northern Europe with the Reformation. The, these accidents of, of the Reformation, the extremely radical ideas of the English Civil War, and then ultimately, and I think they were necessary too, the American and then the French Revolution at the end of the 1700s. One little thing on the, not little thing, but on the French Revolution, why did it go so badly? I mean, ended up with a Stalinist terror. Freedom and reason put together are the enlightenment of the 18th century. But, you know, reason has its limits. And if you don't have enough freedom in your society and your economic arrangements, all the planning, all the attempts to lay down the future that you may have in mind are, are not going to work, as we're seeing, for example, in Venezuela. You might say the French were too much with the blackboard and the theory rather than the real world of human nature. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and the contrast between Rousseau on the one hand and Adam Smith on the other is emblematic of this. Adam Smith is very much empirical. He's immersed in the, in the business community of his time, whereas Rousseau writes a theoretical treatise on child, child care while sending all his children away to an orphanage. Where they die. <laughs> the contrast is sharp, and it's continued to the present day. Our friends on the left, and I have lots of such friends, believe that reason is it, that you can plan the future. Whereas my liberal friends, in the correct use of the word, they realize, as Yogi Berra said, it's hard to predict, especially about the future. So uh, sum up, if you would, what you see as the bourgeois values that made this extraordinary advance possible. I think all through history, 
the middleman, the, the merchant, has had a set of the same kinds of virtues as other people in the society have, but of a commercial character. So one has courage, but we call it enterprise. One has justice, but we call it paying an honest wage for an honest day's work, and so forth. But what did change is the attitude towards the middle class, towards the merchant, and especially the inventor. The very word innovation was a bad word in English, in French, until the 19th century. Before then, innovation was dangerous. You were going to again, disturb the hierarchies. The society would fall apart, blah, blah, blah. So this entrepreneurial energy, this innovism came to be admired. And it's strange because just by changing that, you change the world. What brought about that change, that attitude towards the grubby thing of commerce? I, I think it's success was what brought it about. You have this growth in Northwestern Europe of liberalism, of allowing people to have a go. For example, in the, in, in the 1740s, the English courts stopped enforcing the rules of guilds, the rule that if you came to a new town in Britain, in England in particular, you had to, if you're going to sell shoes, you had to join the shoemakers guild and be subject to their hierarchy. That stopped happening rather suddenly in English court cases. And the result was you could move to a town and set up a shoemaking factory and carry on. And this is a tricky question. I'm not really completely sure of the answer, but I, I, I think at least part of the answer is that the English, as the Dutch had before, and the Scots then in, even more so, discovered that letting people have a go worked very well and redounded to the wealth of the nation. Do you think it was then uh, the observation, empirical observation, that the success of a merchant or a factory meant success for others? Yes, although, of course, up to the present, we have the counter-argument that um, we have to wage not war, but persuasions, um, sweet talk, persuasion against the idea that the economy is a zero sum. And current trade policy pushed by Trump is, is an expression of a zero sum view of the world. And once, indeed before 1800, zero sum was not, not a bad approximation to how the world was actually operating. Now, you uh, had mentioned in the past Sam Walton became immensely rich as heirs became immensely rich, but you threw out the uh, number that, yeah, they got rich, they got 2% of the wealth, but 98% went to the rest of us. It was not zero sum, that somebody else's wealth is all of our wealth in a sense. The reason that the Waltons got rich, the children of the founder, is because the founder had devised a way by using uh, barcodes in an unusual way, for example, and, and watching inventory very closely, to, to make us better off, to sell goods at Walmart 
increasingly services as well at a lower price than was conventional. What's the complaint? They're made better off, so are we. That's the key. We're better off. Only envy would make us say that it's bad that the Waltons or the Jeff Bezos or, or the Carnegies or, or the Rockefellers getting rich is a bad thing. And the problem with envy as basis for social policy is that it's unending. I can envy you for your, uh, I don't know, your, your money or something. You can envy me for I don't know what. Your genius. Oh, thank you. But if, if, if we're all envying each other, if we're all trying to equalize each other, then we have to, uh, I don't know, pound nails into your head so you're not so commercially creative until you're as, as stupid as I am about, uh, about commercial things. So <laughs> that way lies the end of human progress and human progress for the poorest among us. It's not true that the rich have been the chief beneficiaries of this innovism. Sure, the rich get, I don't know, an extra yacht, but the poor get food on, on the table and a roof over their heads. And you uh, make a point, too, since we, when we think about finance, economics, very material, but also, though, uh, this a huge expansion of people's incomes from $3 a day to $100 a day in these countries has a positive cultural effect, the rise of symphony orchestras and the like. Walk, walk us through that it's not just a, a bigger paycheck. This, this enriches our lives in other ways. Around 1800, there developed, for example, in Holland and in England, a large enriched middle class doing well by, by doing good. And we started to get larger and larger concert halls these people had a taste for classical music. And so the symphonies with the orchestras of Beethoven and Brahms are a creation, a cultural creation of innovism. Take a more, more, more recent example. The extraordinary fact that now, and increasingly so, we're able to access the actual texts of books in in libraries on the internet. This is a tremendously democratizing uh, of scholarship. You can be a Peruvian peasant in the Andes, and if you learn English or French, or for that matter, Spanish, you can now or soon have access to the great libraries of the world and become yourself an innovator in scholarship. You don't have to be at Oxford or Harvard or Paris. So Andrew Carnegie was famous for endowing, building 4,000 libraries in the U.S. Now with handhelds, we have, what, six or seven billion, in effect, libraries <laughs> around the world. Exactly. In fact, I became a socialist when I was about 15 or, or, or 16 because I discovered the socialist classics in, wait for it, the Carnegie Library in my hometown of Wakefield, um, Massachusetts. And that's how I got started in my purpose of helping the poor. What I gradually understood when I started to 
actually study economics in a serious way is that you don't help the poor by introducing socialism. You help the poor by introducing innovism. And the idea of individual dignity. Absolutely. And socialism, although it's often portrayed as, as the high road to individual dignity, is the opposite. If you're living in, in public housing in Chicago, you're under the thumb of the public housing bureaucracy. And if they don't like you because you're gay or because you're a single mother with too many children, they can discriminate against you very easily, whereas a market would do that much less. Is China, do you believe, despite the political regime it has now, is this idea of individualism, of individual dignity, of uh, you don't have to be under the thumb of an involuntary hierarchy. Is that spreading in China despite what we see in Beijing? The problem in China, by contrast with India, is that they can have a go but only in the economy and indeed only some parts of the economy. In banking, for example, the state still controls investment. So it's been amazing what's happening in China since 78. I had a colleague at Fudan University in Shanghai. When he came as a student, first year student in 1981, found two tall buildings in Shanghai, the, the Sheraton and the Hilton. And now he says there are 2,000. So there's this, this um, it's, it's, it's amazing what happens if you let people alone to make their way for themselves. But I'm more optimistic about India, actually, than China. Because India, crazy though it is, is already a democracy. So I'm, you know, I hope there's a transition to China, as there has been in South Korea, Taiwan, uh, and many other places from hierarchy and central planning to a truly free society on all scores. You mentioned earlier that before this extraordinary revolution in thought, an emperor, a king, could stop progress. We saw it with the bureaucracy in China in the 14-1500s. Are we in danger of losing the future, not by an emperor, but by attitudes of not understanding why we're where we're at, or is it just too widespread to shut it down? I think, uh, I think that both are true. I, I think that there's a danger, as we saw from 1979, on, that we'll, we'll adopt this uh, anti-innovism and the rule of law and free trade that goes along with it, allowing people to buy what and where they want to there certainly is a danger from excessive regulation. I call it slow socialism. It's very irritating to the American left to be called socialist. At least some of them don't like to be called that because they regard it as sort of McCarthyism. But in fact, they are slow socialists. They, they believe in rationality and planning and intervening. They believe that you can make people better off by act of Congress. In fact, only by act of Congress. 
Don't drink Coca-Cola. Okay. <laughs> don't drink Coca-Cola. Don't have large drinks. Don't vape. Is that what it's called? Vaping. Yes. Don't do that. Don't do this. And it would be wonderful if it were true. I'd be thrilled if by just passing hundreds of laws every year, Congress could make us steadily better and better off. And yet they all ignore prohibition. I mean, we, we've seen this movie before. <laughs> we've seen this movie before, but they want to run it again. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm an optimist. And I think that, as you point out, the mere demonstration effect of the success of places like China and India and Botswana in sub-Saharan Africa or the three Baltic nations in Europe will, I think, in the long run overcome this irrational enthusiasm for real rationalism. So quickly describe your own amazing journey, uh, which demonstrates whether it's the pursuit of happiness or individuals uh, being free to pursue what they think they have as unique. Give us a quick summary of your amazing journey. Well, I've, I've had a lot of amazing journeys, and, and, and I live in a basically free society, despite the encroachments of slow socialism. And so I've been able to become freer, um, changing gender in 1995, and uh, slowly becoming an Austrian economist rather than a, um, the, actually sort of a supplement to my Chicago school beliefs and changing in lots of ways, you know, and, you know, having a go. Uh, I've continued to learn as I think all of us do and you certainly do, Steve. I, I've continued to listen and slowly I've gotten to understand what's important for a free society, for a prosperous society, for a cultured and exploring society, such as I see happening in, in India and here in the United States. And you would uh, summarize it as true individual equality, but more than that, or expanding that individual dignity. That's right. The, the, the kind of dignity that Immanuel Kant and indeed the Abrahamic religions emphasize, the freedom of the will, not the freedom to tax or hurt other people, but the freedom to have a go. Deirdre McCloskey, thank you very much. Great scholar, insightful, and gets to the essence. Uh, we, the human race. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Steve. Here are my reads of the week, two articles. The first is an article entitled, Inclusive Sizing is Revolutionizing Fashion. Just don't call it plus size. The piece is by Rory Satron and can be found at wallstreetjournal.com, wsj.com. The piece is making the point that fashion is no longer just for tall, thin women. Now we've heard this theme for years and years, the fashion people are going to go after women who are above size one, but somehow it's just never seemed to happen. Yes, they make clothing for larger women, but by golly, they're not the kind of chic clothing they do for people who are pencil thin. Now they're finally waking up, realizing that if they come up with great clothing for all women, sales will go up. Wow. 
Second Reader of the Week is one of America's great writers who died a few days ago, Herman Walk. The article's entitled Herman Walk, 1915-2019, Entertainment with a Deeper Purpose. It was written by John Podhoritz at Commentary Magazine. You can find it at commentarymagazine.com. But the purpose of the article was to make amends because decades ago, Commentary trashed Herman Walk. Critics disdained him. And so John Podhoritz, a couple of years ago, commissioned an article to do proper justice to Herman Walk, and he does it again with Walk's passing. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.